company name is actually called Keystone CPA. What we're known for is tax saving strategies for real estate investors. So the vast majority of our clients are real estate investors. It's not a secret, right, where people say that um, for most wealthy people, real estate is part of their portfolio. As real estate investors, we are afforded a lot of the same benefits of being a business owner. Um, from the perspective of tax write-offs that you get to take as a business owner. Rental property investing versus doing fix and flip or wholesale or property management, more like an active business. So what the IRS will look for is what are you doing with respect to your real estate and how many hours are you spending in real estate versus non-real estate? So the three main rules to being a real estate professional. Hey, investors, you're listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, comments, and strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We're all about passive investments with real gains, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Good afternoon, investors. This is the Investing to Win podcast, and I'm your host, Garrett Wong. This afternoon, I'm pleased to have from Keystone, um, Amanda and Matt. How are you guys? We're doing great. Thanks for having us, Garrett. Yeah, glad to be here, Garrett. Absolutely. So I said Keystone, I guess I should have said the entire uh, um, company name, but why don't you guys give us a little bit of background about Keystone and maybe even you guys can take turns and uh, say a little bit about your individual uh, introductions. Sure, sure. Yeah, so our company name is actually called Keystone CPA. Uh, and we have to be specific because there's another company called Keystone CPA as well. Um, so our firm is located in Southern California, uh, although uh, we do help clients nationwide. Um, what we're known for is tax saving strategies for real estate investors. So the vast majority of our clients are real estate investors. Um, it kind of scans spans the spectrum uh, anywhere from somebody who is a high income earner, uh, a service professional like a physician, an attorney, uh, who is getting into real estate as one of their ways to build wealth, all the way to people who are full-time real estate, uh, syndicating large deals in uh, multifamily, self-storage, and all that good stuff. Um, and then beyond that, Matt and I are real estate investors ourselves, so always happy to be here on these kinds of podcasts. Yeah, and full disclosure, we are married to each other, so if we drop any weird commas <laughs> later on, like you'll, you'll understand why. So you're partners in a dual sense of the word. That's awesome. Yes. No, I think we can do an entire podcast on uh, spouses working with each other, but uh, <laughs> we'll stick to the accounting stuff. So, okay, that's a great that's a great intro. What the reason I wanted to bring you guys on, even though we are from Canada, is I have a lot of investors, as we said in our pre-show, that are Canadian that have been dabbling down south. And I'm really intrigued by a lot of your tax saving strategies. We won't sort of cross the border, so to speak, because I don't want to put you guys on the spot for Canadian tax, but certainly like to hear, you know, from an American citizen point of view and everything that you guys can do and what, uh, you know, enlighten us. So let's, let's talk about, I guess we'll start with real estate investors. Can you kind of share an overview of tax saving strategies, maybe a 10,000 foot view that you found most effective in the sector? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's not a secret, right, where people say that um, for most wealthy people, real estate is part of their portfolio. And um, the reason that is, is because the tax law favors real estate. And what I mean by that is the government incentivizes investors to provide housing for people, right? Because the U.S. government is not in the business of of providing housing. And so they want to incentivize people to invest and grow their money and do it in a way that helps with housing for the, you know, for, for the uh, population at large. And so, so as real estate investors, we are afforded a lot of the same benefits of being a business owner um, from the perspective of tax write-offs that you get to take as a business owner are similar to what you get as an investor. Um, but I think the big one that we get as investors is depreciation. Yeah, I mean, from a, you know, a high level, like why we love real estate so much from a tax planning perspective, from being an investor, you know, compared to like buying stocks, right? If, you know, one of your listeners go out and buy Apple stock or Google stock or one of those, they don't, you know, they don't get to write off the cost of the stock right away, right? They don't even get to write that off until down the road when they sell the stock eventually. But, you know, for those rental property investors listening in, right, when we buy rental properties, uh, the IRS allows us to take a... Um, we call a paper write-off every year against the cash flow that you're making from the property for depreciation expense. So it's a great way that we can shield the the income that you're otherwise going to be paying from tax, you know, uh, shield that from having to pay tax by being able to deduct depreciation against it. So it's, it's a huge advantage uh, when looking, you know, investing in re- rental real estate for sure. Yeah, no, um, let's, let's back up a little bit and assume that we have a lot of novices listening. Um, can you kind of de- define depreciation for us? Yeah, it's just um, it's kind of this concept. The IRS um, we I refer to it as kind of a paper write-off. So, you know, you buy a five hundred thousand dollar property. Um, let's say of that, four hundred thousand is is for the building, and hundred thousand dollars is for the land. Uh, we don't get the write-off the land, but the building, the IRS says, hey, due to normal wear and tear and just kind of use and things like that, you get to take a deduction every year for a part of that building. So that four hundred thousand dollars, in our example. You know, if it's an apartment building, you get to depreciate that uh, evenly over 27 and a half years. So basically, it's an extra expense added to your tax return against the rental income. Um, and again, this is based on the, you know, starting at the purchase price. It doesn't matter if you paid all cash for it. It doesn't matter if you put 20% down. It doesn't matter if you put 0% down. Um, all those things can work in those examples. Okay. Um, so I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that because um, obviously depreciating, you can write it off on tax. What's the end game, though, after when you're trying to sell? That's a great question. I think that the answer to that will really depend person to person. Um, So we have a lot of clients who have invested in real estate for um, a couple years, right? So let's say the property appreciates in value and you decide, well, I want to sell and maybe reinvest my money into bigger, better deals. Um, when you do that, you can do a 1031 exchange. And basically, the 1031 exchange in the U.S. allows you to defer any capital gains taxes uh, that you would otherwise pay. This strategy could be used time and time again. And so one uh, really amazing way to really save on taxes in your lifetime is to continue to 1031 exchange from a small single family to a small multifamily, small multifamily to a larger multifamily, and ultimately pass away with the asset in your name or in the name of your living trust. And what happens is at that point in time, you get what's called a step-up basis. 
So the example would be you bought the property for 100000 When you pass away, it's worth a million. Well, your beneficiaries get to inherit the property at a million dollars in cost basis. And so if they were to sell it, that means the first million dollars they don't have to pay taxes on. So that's, you know, more kind of advanced um, multi-year planning. But you're right. I mean, if I bought a property, I take depreciation, I sell it the next year, I don't have any strategies, then you're going to end up paying taxes on some of that depreciation that you took previously if you're selling for a gain. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my basic knowledge of it. I mean, just to, to make easy numbers, let's say that you have, I, I don't know, $100,000 property and depreciate for five years at 10% each year. And I'm, I'm not going to do the exact math on that, but let's just say it's mm -hmm. like 45000 or something like that. And then you sell it for 200000 Instead of going from two hundred down to one hundred, now you're subtracting... 200 from like 65,000. So there's that extra tax you'd have to pay. Of course, capital gains is taxed differently depending on your whole bunch of different things. I, I don't think I quite, I've heard of 1031, but that's just me like, you know, reading and bigger pockets and things like that. Maybe dive deeper into that a little bit for us. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you're kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, you're, you're understanding kind of, you know, correct. It's, uh, you know, you do, when you do take depreciation, it does reduce what they call your basis in the property. So that can increase the gain on the back end. Um, but it is something to be honest with you, the IRS actually uh, expects you to do so they can, if you, somebody doesn't take depreciation, you know, <clears throat> and you later sell it, they can actually recalculate your gain as if you did take depreciation. So it's always in your best interest to take depreciation expense. A lot of times it works out in the favor of the investor, especially if they're in a higher tax bracket when taking depreciation versus that, capital gains or depreciation recapture rate. Um, but for a 1031 exchange, you kind of think of it like someone's selling an asset, uh, you know, rental property, keep it simple. And they're going to have gain on sale. They're going to be paying taxes, but they don't want to because they're going to just reinvest that money back into more real estate. So the tax code in the U.S. gives you this ability to, uh, if you meet certain requirements, to reinvest that money into new rental real estate, for lack of a better term, and not have to pay taxes right now on that gain from the from the old property. So that's kind of okay. I see. In a nutshell. Okay. okay. So again, I have to go really simplistic because that's kind of how my level of knowledge is for accounting. So you have a property, you've depreciated it for five, ten years. You do, a, and then you sold it, but you basically a ten thirty one exchange. Could we kind of compare that to a suitcase where you're taking your tax liability and you're as long as you're buying, up, I don't know what if there's different types of properties, but then now you're able to shift that suitcase over. So that tax liability then goes from property to property to property. Is that accurate or am I completely off base? Yeah, no, exactly. It's like the game of Monopoly, right? So you buy a couple single family homes, you decide to sell it, you can 1031 exchange into other real estate. And other real estate could be more single family homes. It could be a large property or $10 smaller properties. It could be a multifamily. It could be a, a medical building, right? Any kind of commercial property. So that's the benefit is that the the um, that rule is pretty flexible in terms of what they consider like kind, right? So like kind could be all kinds of real estate. It could be a long-term rental, short-term rental, midterm rental. All those are possibilities. Exchange. Okay, so are there any actual like restrictions on a 1031 or it's kind of like buyer's choice? Uh, no, there's plenty. There's there's lots of rules that are probably way too in depth to go into, but uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely there's definitely restrictions, but it's it is very flexible. I mean, that's we've seen clients 
I mean, change from selling a 16 unit multifamily to four single families or vice versa, or, you know, selling single families, buying strip malls, you know, things like that. So it's, it's a lot of flexibility. Yeah. I think the restrictions are more on the timing side, you know, in terms of like when you sell, um, you have to identify your replacement properties. You have to close on your properties. Um, there's like purchase price requirements. So that's the part of, that's where the planning comes in, right? Is that what we tell clients is, hey, before you sell a property, when you're planning on selling, that's what we want to know. Uh, because a lot of the analysis and calculation have to be looked at before you sell. After you've already sold the property, believe it or not, it's too late to do a 1031 exchange. It all has to be done prior to closing. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's where having a really good planning and advisor on your team is important. Um, just one more uh, thing on depreciation before we move on. I think traditionally in my mind, I've always thought of depreciation as kind of like an RSP type tax tool where you can defer that capital gains tax to later when maybe your, you know, your total income is in a different class. Would you, uh, does that work that way in the U.S.? Uh, not based on how you're describing it. I mean, um, you know, you can't, you get to take the deduction. Um, like really that deferral is more like on the, on the sales side of things from the 1031 exchange or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So I, I know you guys work with a ton of different clients. Um, you know, we had said what's like small individuals and you've got small businesses, medium sized businesses, high net worth individuals. How do you, how do you tailor your tax planning strategies for all those needs? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's difficult because tax planning really um, can't be cookie cutter. You know, we actually tell, I talk clients this all the time. Like, hey, if somebody is telling you like without doing a deep dive and just telling you like, this is exactly what you should do. This is your plan. Um, you have to be fearful of that because you can have two taxpayers working in the same company or earning the same amount of income, but have very different strategies depending on like, you know, what their goals are. And also depending on if they're married or not married and what their spouse does. So mm -hmm. for us, the planning around, you know, smaller investors, larger investors, uh, that's not really the, the profile. The profile is just, you know, different investors have different needs based on what they're planning on doing. So it is pretty tailored to each person, um, even within the same person, right? So Garrett, for example, what you plan to do in 2024 might be different than what you're planning in 2025 with respect to your business and your real estate. And so your strategies will change and evolve over time too. So uh, that's part of being the role of a good advisor is understanding all those differences. Okay. Can you give us some general examples though of a tax planning strategy for let's say a, a small or medium sized business? Cause I, I don't really, you know, I think that's going to be good for some of our listeners as well. Cause a lot of people just think about that individual tax. And by business, do you mean like full-time and real estate business? Or are you thinking like a non-real estate business? Give us both examples. I mean, we're here to explore. Yeah, I would say, you know, I mean, for real estate, I think we kind of touched on some of the major things, right? In terms of like doing depreciation, um, accelerated depreciation so that you can really use a lot of these paper losses to offset all of your rental income. Um, if we're talking about a non-real estate business, uh, let's say it's a doctor who's also interested in investing in real estate. Uh, one really powerful strategy is if you have a spouse who can be doing the real estate full time. Uh, in the tax world, 
if the spouse can be a real estate professional under IRS terms, then what could happen is you can create strategically a bunch of rental losses and use that to offset the active income of that physician from their medical practice, right? Or, or even if it's a W-2 income, right, from being a doctor. So um, regardless of whether, you know, your full-time job is real estate or not, there are sometimes ways to combine those two worlds, real estate and non-real estate, and get some pretty significant tax savings. Um, but I think the caveat is like anything in real estate, it's not a one size fits all. So there are plenty of people who cannot use this strategy. So it does take careful consideration and, and, and planning for you know the coming year. No, that's fair. Um, well, let's shift over to a real estate investor. That's where I'm really, really curious to see the differences. Um, what would you tailor or I mean, what are the specific rules around real estate investing? I know I'll, I'll kind of give you a hint because up here we have sort of active and passive, like even rental income. And there's there's a whole different class that you might have to pay there. What Can you kind of describe an overview of what, what that uh, scenario looks like in the US? Yeah, I mean, down here we have something very similar. They do have anytime you're investing in uh, rentals or businesses, you know, that you're kind of, you know, a, a part owner, you get, you know, the income passes through to you. Um, they have those distinctions, active and passive, or, you know, we call it passive and non-passive, same thing. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, rentals by rental at properties by default are considered passive activities. So here in the United States, if, um, you know, if somebody makes $100,000 or less, they're generally allowed to deduct up to $25,000 of rental losses against other incomes of W-2, business, whatever they have, uh, which can make a, you know, it can be a big swing if you go from hundred grand of income to $75,000. Um, but once that person reaches about $150,000 in income, their ability to deduct rental losses against their income kind of goes away. So it uh, kind of, you know, between 100 and 150, it kind of phases out. So for the people who are above 150, um, with rentals being default passive, and if you're looking to use rental losses to offset other income, that's kind of where some of the advanced rates like real estate professional come into play. Um, or we've got clients investing in short-term rentals. They're kind of using some, some being actively involved in their short-term rentals and being able to generate losses through depreciation that way. And so there's lots of different things you can do, but you know, yeah, there's, Definitely, you have to factor in the active versus passive categories anytime you're looking at investing. Yeah, and I think the natural question for most people is like, what is a real estate professional, right? Because we're saying that's how you bring the passive into the active world. And so contrary to popular belief, real estate professional is not does not mean you have to go out and get licensed and start showing properties on the weekends. Um, in fact, whether you have your license or not is, is not really a leading indicator. So what the IRS will look for is what are you doing with respect to your real estate and how many hours are you spending in real estate versus non-real estate? So the three main rules to being a real estate professional first is you have to spend more time in real estate than your other jobs. So like if you don't, you know, if you're if you're a part time teacher and you, you spend a thousand hours at work, then you have to have more than a thousand hours in real estate. Um, if you don't work right, then the next requirement is you have to have at least 750 hours in real estate. So, again, even if you don't have a job, you're a stay at home mom or dad, you still have to have at least 750 hours in real estate to be a real estate professional. And then the third rule is you have to materially participate in your long-term rentals. And so those are just more like hands-on hours dealing with the day-to-day -day operations, right? So that's managing the contractors, managing the properties, managing the crew. Um, at least 700 hours is typically the, th the threshold. And so once 
a person meets all three of those, then they can be considered a real estate professional in the tax world. And what that means is now you can bring those passive losses into active losses and they can offset W-2 and other income. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, lots of questions in my head here because like you keep referring to passive losses, active losses, but what about actual like income? I mean, is there a difference between an active and a passive investor with respect to paying income tax on those, on that net profit? I mean, regardless of whether you're active or passive, if you have taxable rental income, they're all treated the same in that you don't have to pay Social Security, Medicare, right? Versus like if you are in a business, if you're an attorney and you earn that kind of active income, you have to pay federal state income taxes as well as um, payroll taxes or self-employment tax into Social Security. For rental income, um, I don't want to say 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the time, you don't have to pay into Social Security and Medicare. So that is another added benefit of rental income compared to other type of earned income. Yeah. Did you know there's a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants, and they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands-off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Wong Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there's a fit. Once again, the link is www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. Okay. What about for a corporation? Um, are there different rules for tax taxes with a corporation versus owning as an individual? Uh, yeah, there can be. I mean, there's different, you know, in the United States, there's different corporations. There's C-Corps, there's S-Corps. Uh, C-Corps pay their own taxes. Um, S-Corps, partnerships, or what we would call like flow-through entities or pass-through entities where the whatever income they make, they ends up getting taxed on your personal return. So that it doesn't really get taxed at the company level. Um, so yeah, C-Corps are really the, you know, other than, you know, there's trust and other things like that, but that's a main, the C-Corporation is the main one that pays its own taxes. Okay. And would there be different tax levels? I, I guess, let me, let me, instead of skirting around it, I know here, at least in Canada, we can own real estate, uh, you know, as a corporation, but that's not enough to pay a lower tax, like a corporate tax rate, right? Because that's kind of here. There's also active and passive and I'm not going to quote percentages. And I should have put a disclaimer on myself that I'm not an accountant. Um, and everything should not be construed as advice or actual knowledge, but to the best of my recollection, you know, I'll give you an example, right? An individual here might pay 45% on a rental income, sort of the same as a stock or an investment, 
Um, and yet a corporation, not even in real estate, just a corporation here might be paying, you know, 11, 12% type of thing. And here in Canada, if you, if your corporation that owns real estate has five or more full-time employees, then that is considered an active corporation and an active partner in real estate. Is there anything similar to that in the U.S.? Um, I mean, there's similar stuff, yes. Like for us, C corporations pay a lower tax rate. Um, but I don't want to confuse our audience because the two different countries are just very different. So what I'll sure. say is, that yeah. in short, if you are a real estate investor in the U.S., for U.S. tax purposes, um, we don't recommend holding rental properties in a C corporation. Even though C corporations have lower tax rates than individuals, it is not recommended to hold rentals specifically in C corporations. Um, several different reasons. I'll just cover the main one. Uh, main one being that as investors, are, are typically our rentals are creating tax losses. Tax losses that we strategically create through write-offs, through depreciation, through accelerated depreciation. And, and so what we always want to do is we want to try to use that to offset our personal income where we pay high tax rates. We don't want to have it trapped in a corporation by itself because that's not helping me to reduce my personal taxes. Um, like, there's several other reasons why we don't recommend C-Corp, but I think that's probably one of the main reasons to, to answer your specific question. Okay. No, that's great. That's very clear. Thank you very much for that. Um, you mentioned retirement, and I'd like to spend a, a good portion of, of the uh, next segment on that. Retirement planning specifically for real estate investors. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's just, I mean, it's, it's just as important as any other, any other taxpayer, right? I mean, you got to looking at, looking at everything they have going on holistic, like what are, what are their short-term, long-term goals? Where do they want to be? And can they use a, you know, retirement account as one of their investment vehicles to help them get to that, that end goal, whatever that end goal might be. Um, so for real estate investors, they, they, you know, have options just like any other person. I mean, somebody might be working at it as an employee at somebody's company, they got their 401k set up. Real estate investor, depending, it depends on the type of real estate they're doing. If they are doing, um, you know, rental property investing versus doing fix and flip or wholesale or property management, more like an active business, there's going to be different options there as well. So, uh, but a lot of the ty same types of plans can can be available to to everybody. Yeah, because most of our clients are real estate investors. What we tend to work a lot in is people using their retirement money for real estate. So, for example, let's say you worked at Google and over the years you've built up three hundred thousand dollars in your Google four hundred one k. Well. There are ways that you can roll that money out of the Google 401k account, right? Because within Google's 401k, you're probably limited to stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So there could be ways for you to roll that out into like a self-directed retirement account, still within retirement, but now it's a self-directed account. And then from that IRA, use it to invest in rental properties. Um, so that's what we see a lot because, again, most of our clients are like, hey, I want to put my money in real estate rather than the stock market. So the retirement bucket is a really great bucket of income or not income, but a bucket of money that you can potentially deploy into real estate uh, rather than just having it stuck in the market. OK, can you define self-directed investing for me just uh, for the audience? 
Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> so when we talk about self-directed, we mean a true self-directed account is one where nobody's telling you what to invest in, right? So I mean, you're going to move it to Garrett's self-directed IRA. Garrett gets to decide, I'm going to buy this property on Main Street. I'm going to invest in John's syndication. I'm going to make a, a note uh, to Bobby over here, right? You decide the different options. Um a lot of financial advisors will tell you they have self-directed accounts like Charles Schwab, um, Fidelity. They'll say, oh, we, you can self-direct here. The difference is when they say self-direct, they mean you get to choose from our portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, right? But you cannot go out and invest with Bobby or Amanda or whoever you want. So that's the difference. When we say self-direct, we truly mean you choose what it is that you want to invest in. It's not limited to... Uh, those paper assets. Okay, okay. Let's uh, let's move on to audits. Um, they can be daunting. Uh, how do you, you know, maybe talk about your approach on audit representation? You know, resolution um, specifically, maybe for real estate clients. You know, I think um, for us, audit preparation starts. <laughs> before the audit, audit preparation starts at tax return preparation time. So every return we do, uh, we always reference like where the numbers are coming from. So if a client provides something to us and we have to add stuff up or we have to move things around, uh, we internally have our paper trail of how things are, you know, how do we arrive at whatever number it is that that's on the actual tax return. Um, and we also ask clients a lot of questions about expenses and income and try to match things up, right? And all that, uh, I know some of our clients are like, gosh, you asked me so many questions. My old CPA never asked me those questions. And so part of that is just really making sure we understand what's happened and are reporting things correctly. So- um, Yeah, I mean, part of it is just educating the clients to get their ducks in a row, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I think the overriding theme is don't be afraid of an audit. I mean, if you're entitled to legally deduct something and you have the documentation and you've met the requirements, then you should be deducting that. You know, maybe that is a quote unquote higher risk item than something else. But again, if you have everything in place and you're allowed to do it, then why wouldn't you do it? Um, so yeah, don't, don't fear the audit, but you know, plan ahead, you know, upfront, you know, that, uh, yeah, okay, if I'm going to do this, I've got the receipts, I've got the invoices, I've got, I'm claiming real estate professional. I need hours. I got my time law, whatever it is. They've got all their documentation in place. Yeah, and I also think too that um, in terms of dealing with audits, right? If an audit were to actually occur, they really appreciate that because uh, you know auditors aren't really like the scary monsters that I know a lot of CPAs paint them out to be. What we found is like, hey, you give them what they request in a very organized manner. You explain to them if there's anything that's kind of wacky, you explain to them. So they understand what's going on. They can follow your thought process and your positions and your paperwork. They're very reasonable people too. Uh, alternatively, if you just throw them a pile of crap, uh, then they get angry. They start digging around. They start asking random questions. And, and part of that, you know, I, I presume is just because they're frustrated. They don't know what you've handed them. Um, so I think, you know, with audits, I mean, you know, I would, you know, always try to like respect the auditors as the individuals they are. They're just trying to do a job. And so to the extent you can make their job easy, um, then it's kind of, you know, makes everything much smoother. Yeah, no, I think what you're talking about here is building credibility, right? You're prepared. You're like, okay, if I get audited, that's fine. It's going to be a pain, but here's all my documentation. You're not going to find anything because we've 
taken the step to, to prepare ourselves ahead of time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And they are not the monsters that people <laughs> paint them out to be. Yeah, I've been on it a few times. You give them a pile of crap, maybe they, maybe they turn into the monster. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. Let's let's talk about industry changes, specifically on the tax landscape. Um, what have you guys seen over your career uh, in real estate for with respect to tax changes? Oh man, just the I think the overriding theme that we've seen in our career is complexity. It keeps getting more and more complex. There's more and more calculations and analysis. And uh, gosh, every time there's some major event, you know, like during COVID back in 2020, there was just an insane amount of changes. New change every week, it seemed like. (laughs) Um, And, you know, every time we have an election here, right, there's there's changes like before, during and after. Um, So, yeah, I think it's, you know... I don't know. I don't, we all, you know, I think the politicians always talk about simplifying the tax code and everybody, you know, loves that. It sounds really amazing. And then what we actually see, though, in practice is that it's not simplified. It's becoming more and more complex. So hopefully that will change in the near future. But um, I think the reason the law becomes more complex is whenever there's a new rule, then there are new strategies to circumvent the rule. And once the IRS knows about the strategies, then they create another rule to prevent uh, these strategies from occurring and just kind of, you know, goes back and forth on that. Okay. So trying to close the loopholes, so to speak, as they find them. Maybe that's <laughs> yeah. a poor way of understanding it. The lag time, we come up with this rule and we're going to give you some further guidance on it, but that guidance doesn't come out for three years after the fact. And it's, yeah, and know, that, can sh- be, that can be challenging. I'll share a really interesting story. So like I said, back during COVID, there was a lot of um, tax changes and um, we had an uh, so we had a client who was under audit. And when I was, you know, because I was talking to the auditor about the case, I just brought up uh, a question about some new law change, right? Because it's kind of like brand new. Nobody has clarity on what exactly, ha- you know, this means in this scenario. So I just thought, well, you know, I have the auditor here. Let me just, I want to see what, what the auditor's position is. And the response he said was, you know, that's a new thing. And we are not being trained on that at all. Um because, you know, we're not auditing 2020 until at least three years later. So I have no idea. I don't even know what the change is. So I thought that was really telling that. Um, and it's, you know, when, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? They're not auditing you for a few years from today. So whatever law change happens today, the auditor is not really thinking about that just yet. It's down the road for them. Whereas for us, we need to know because transactions are happening today, not three years from now. <laughs> Yeah. Can you um, maybe in the last couple of years, give us some examples of different like major impact tax laws that, that you've seen come through specifically for real estate? Yeah, the biggest, the, I mean, COVID, there was a lot of changes, but prior to that, I mean, it's in the last, you know, end of 2017 here in the U.S., we had the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And that changed a lot of things. I mean, that brought, uh, that brought back bonus depreciation. It brought back bonus depreciation being eligible for used assets where before it had to be brand new assets. So that was a big, that was a big change that made depreciation much more valuable for rental property investors. Uh, they have this thing called qualified business income for a, a 20% pass through deduction that didn't even exist prior to the end of 2017. So that was like, that was a whole new thing that, you know, we all had to get trained up on. Um, I mean, those are a couple of things that come to mind. They, you know, we talked about 1031 exchanges before in the last eight years, they probably talked about, taking that off the table or changing how it's done or capping it or whatever. I mean, probably 10 times 
you know, and then luckily nothing's changed on it, but you know, again, it could be you know brought back at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are just like some of the real estate specific changes. I think one, you know, we talked about 1031 exchange right earlier and our ability to kind of defer capital gains sort of indefinitely into the future and maybe never pay it. Uh, that's one that's sort of like, always on the chopping block, that they're trying to change it, trying to get rid of it, trying to put a cap on it, limit it in some way. Um, yet, so far, it still hasn't changed. So that's one we're kind of always keeping our eyes on, um, just because we work mostly with investors. And that's a huge you know, strategy for investors. No, for sure. I, I mean, are there, let's talk about real estate tax planning. And I'm going to ask this question in two parts. So the first question would be, are there some misconceptions in real estate tax planning overlooked that a lot of people are just like, Hey, I'm just going to do this on my own. (laughs) I think that biggest misconception, not just specific to real estate, but just taxpayers in general in the U S and maybe in Canada too. It's like uh, having this false uh, sense that whoever's preparing your tax returns for last year is also doing tax planning for you. Um, usually that's not the case, right? When you are bringing in your paperwork to get your tax returns filed for last year, you're just reporting what happened in the past. And so unless you have specifically set aside time or an agenda uh, to meet with your tax person on planning for this coming year, then odds are that's not being done. And I think that's a a very huge misconception and missed opportunity area for most taxpayers is not understanding that those are actually two different things and just assuming that their tax filer is already somehow miraculously planning for you in their mind. Okay. Uh, No, I'm just thinking back to people. You're absolutely right, Amanda. I mean, I've had accountants in the past. They're just going to file your taxes. They're not looking. I've even had people who I didn't want to depreciate strategically because I was going to be selling the property soon or or different things like that. And it was just automatically done. I didn't even get to answer the question. You know what I mean? Um, The second part of what I wanted to ask is I'm, I'm always advocating, right? When I'm, when I'm teaching this stuff online, you know, you're going to be uh, a real estate investor. You're aspiring. You haven't even bought your first property yet. You need your power team, right? Talking about your, obviously maybe a realtor. I'm a property manager as well, lawyer, and then, of course, your tax person. When you have somebody coming to you and they're completely green, brand new out of the gate, obviously that's the best time to be able to plan for them. Walk me through like a, a case study, an onboarding. What would that look like? How would you plan and tell them what to do? Um, gosh, you know, for the tax planning you do for newer investors, very different for how you deal with someone who's kind of already in real estate, right? So, so you're right. With someone that's brand new, it's good because the the chances of us having to correct mistakes is very low. Uh, but I think the two main things we start with is taking a look at their previous year's tax return because we want to know what the starting point is. What have you done in the past? Uh, and then we want to know what are you doing this year? You know, what's already happened this year in terms of transactions? Did you buy? What did you buy? Did you have any entities? Um, and then we also want to know, like, what are their plans for the upcoming months, like the rest of this year and then as well as next year? Um, because that piece out of the, the three segments, right, prior, current and future, the future is the one where we have almost unlimited options in terms of planning. So knowing 
Um, like what Matt was saying earlier, knowing if you're interested in short-term rentals versus long-term rentals um, results in a different tax strategy for us. Knowing if you're going to buy one property or five properties is also potentially a different set of strategies, right? So it starts with understanding what is your plan and then the tax strategy is developed, um, you know, in conjunction with whatever that plan is. Okay. Do you see anything coming up in the future if you had your crystal ball uh, trends or upcoming changes? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but you probably develop an instinct for these types of things. Anything uh, that you might enlighten us with? I mean, I think, yeah, I think some of the feeling I get from talking to colleagues that they're, you know, they're expecting interest rates to come down, which would, you know, theoretically be good for the market, right? And then, um, I don't know, I, I expect... You know, political opinions aside, we've got an election coming up in a year. I expect changes to come down in the next 10 months because just from a political capital campaign, like, you know, you're trying to, you know, maybe push something through that people are going to like so you can get elected or reelected, whatever the case may be. I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened because uh, the Biden administration has been talking about a lot of changes over the last four years. And, you know, for the most part in the tax world, uh, not a lot has happened. So that's why I kind of think something's going to happen. Um, but that's, that might just be my opinion, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I feel like, you know, the market is up and down, right. Because of interest rates, just because, you know, demand and supply, but what we've seen in, in some of our, our very successful clients is really the ability to pivot. Um, cause you know, there's money to be made, right. Regardless of which part of the real estate cycle you're in. So I think, um, especially for newer investors, don't be afraid to jump in. I think for newer investors, it's always like, Oh, I wish I bought three years ago. I wish I bought 10 years ago. But you can't think that way, right? Because 10 years from now, you're going to say, gosh, I wish I bought in 2023 or 2024. And so, um, but I think it is really important to understand when you're looking at a property, you should look at multiple exit strategies or multiple um, income streams. So if I, I want to do this as a short-term rental, but if I cannot, can this, will this also make sense as a long-term rental? Right. I plan to hold it, but if I cannot, then how do I exit it? And how do I get my money back with the least amount of losses? I, once you've identified those contingency plans, then you're not as fearful uh, of the interest rate and what the market is saying on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Plan the end before the beginning, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, or, pretty much. Yeah. So I, I uh, did not prepare you with this question, but before we wrap up, I'm just curious because, I mean, clearly you guys are experts in your field. Walk me through, like, why real estate? Why, what drew you to becoming specialists in real estate tax advice? I mean, to be honest with you, like, it, it goes back to kind of that, what we were talking about earlier, there's like the whole, this whole concept of depreciation. I was probably... I was pretty green in my in my career. I was probably two or three years in working in a big four accounting firm and I was working on an individual's taxes. He was probably in his sixties, retired. All he had was real estate. He was making, you know, easily you can tell in the tax rate, making two hundred thousand dollars of cash flow and not paying any taxes. And so that's when it kind of the light bulb went off for me, like, ah, oh, there's something here, you know, like that that made I could get my hands around that more than working on a Fortune five hundred company's tax returns or financial statements. It was some big conglomerate that I don't know, I just, I didn't feel that, that touch too, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for me, I come from a, a, a family of real estate investors. So my grandparents were the first people to do real estate, but 
I never thought I would do real estate investing. I didn't have that aha moment like Matt did. And, and I started out at the same international firm. Uh, I was in the real estate group. So my job was to, to do the tax returns for these large real estate syndications. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't until Matt read uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad book. And he said, you know, we should really do this. And I think this story surprises a lot of people. Like who would have thought that, um, you know, CPAs who work in real estate never thinking to use real estate as their own strategy until they had to read Robert Kiyosaki's book. <laughs> I was ashamed to admit it, but that's kind of how it transpired. So it wasn't like we were like, I don't know, growing up wanting to be in real estate, you know, doing real estate tax. It kind of happened over time. Yeah, but I mean, if you're passionate about it and, you know, you can fulfill that that passion by helping other people and saving those taxes and those aha moments. I think that's, it doesn't, it makes it more fun than work, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, that segues into my final question, which I always ask each guest. Um, this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success and what does winning look like for you? <laughs> you Gosh, can choose who goes uh, first. How... <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think success, gosh, hard to define success. I think success is when you feel, for me at least, it feels like I'm operating at my peak. Um, so it could be, you know, whether it's related to business or home life. It's just, uh, I, I think I feel successful when I've done like what I'm, I set out to do. Um, what does that look like? I think it's just more, you know, um, freedom of time, you know, being able to, have the time to do as I choose and and the project that I choose uh, always seems to happen from a always seems to change from a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> yeah I, I think for me that the thought that comes to mind is I think a lot of people they're always looking ahead right like what else do I want what else do I want what, am, what have I not done uh, you know maybe they compare themselves to other people which is natural but I think it's important for people to uh, always look back and, you know, look at where you've come, right? Celebrate the little successes, the little wins along the way, because sometimes there's going to be a big win. But if you look back and, you know, in a business's history, you might have little wins that add up to the big wins over the years, you know? And so um, it's, it's important for people to kind of remember and, and say like, yeah, we have, you know, compared to what we were doing five years ago, we are that much better. And that, that, that's, that's success right there, you know, regardless of where you want to go five, 10, 15 years from now too. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, great advice, because I think too many people are a little bit too harsh on themselves, right? And they're a little bit too impatient of where they want to go. You want to embrace the journey of getting there, too. Otherwise, there's no fun in it, right? Right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you guys so much, both of you, for appearing on the show. Um, I learned a ton. I've taken lots of notes, and I know that our listeners are going to be also enlightened. I'll get some uh, information from you guys after and throw them in the show notes so people can reach out to you and get your social media handles and everything else like that. But again, thanks for uh, helping me out here and hanging out with me for the last 45 minutes. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Garrett. Yeah, thanks for having us, Garrett. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, Take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to win is not only about helping you to win more, but win actually stands for wise. Investors, network. 
It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there's a fit. Once again, the link is www.wongcapitalcorp.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.